I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. Imagine coming to fear something you've grown up with your whole life. What if the places you used to love start to instill panic? And even worse, what if it all feels like your fault? On this episode, writer Lara McCaffrey shares a story about the struggle to handle her own life and about a traumatizing experience that finally turned things around. I'll let Lara take it from here. I drove away from the casino knowing full well that I shouldn't be driving. I had tried to wake up with five-hour energy shots and Coca-Cola. My head was buzzing, but I could feel my body slowly crashing. I hadn't wanted to go to work earlier that day. I was beyond exhausted. I hadn't slept well the night before. The last thing I needed to do was go to my radio promotions job and set up for a poorly attended event at a casino an hour away. I didn't think I was destined for greatness or anything, but I'd hoped for a more dignified job after graduating from an Ivy League school. The station minivan I was driving had the radio tuned in to the local alternative station. I recognized the jock's voice as Dave, someone I'd gone to college with. I knew he worked there, but hearing him again reminded me that he was more successful than I was. It became harder to focus on the dark road with Dave's voice in the background. My arms started to feel like lead and I could barely keep the wheel straight. I had to pull over. The road was a narrow two-way highway in northeast San Diego County. A fence on one side, open fields on the other. The moon was the only light source other than the hazard lights I had on. Cars would drive by occasionally, but otherwise, I was alone. My mind started going into overdrive. It felt like I was thinking about every single catastrophic thing that could happen. What if a car didn't see me pulled over and hit me? What if some animals found me and attacked me? What if I never felt normal again? I remember thinking I was going to die. Although my brain was working at breakneck speed, my body was too tired to follow through on any of its commands. My breathing became shallow, my vision started to blur, My stomach twisted into knots and I really had to pee. Finally, I called a coworker. I pulled over because I was getting tired, I choked back a sob, desperate for him to be there. I need help. Growing up, I had always been anxious. As a kid, the most minute things might set me off. For example, there was the time I sat through an elementary school awards ceremony. Name after name was being called to receive awards, but not mine. I remember feeling physically sick. Then there was the time in college right before my study abroad program in Scotland. Studying abroad was something I'd always wanted, but 
it was also putting me outside my comfort zone. And I don't like going outside my comfort zone. Two weeks before I was due to leave for my program, I stopped being able to sleep. I started having heart palpitations and shallow breathing, and then one evening, I yacked up everything I tried to eat or drink. My mom stayed up all night crying with me, saying she'd miss me too. Looking at us, you'd think I was going to jail, not studying abroad. The next morning, I whimpered to my dad, I don't want to go. My dad rolled his eyes. He was probably annoyed because he'd already spent money on my flight to Scotland. He told me to call my doctor. The doctor prescribed the sedative Xanax to use when I felt like my anxiety was out of control. The way my parents handled the situation was typical. Whenever I got anxious, I was babied or told to suck it up. I tried to suck it up. I wanted to be strong, to be able to handle life the way other people did. I didn't understand why I was so sensitive. It was embarrassing. After college, anxiety always bubbled at the surface. But sometimes it bubbled over and created a giant public mess that left me mortified like the time driving home from the casino for my promotions job. And then one day, it got really bad. So bad that I felt like I made the biggest mistake of my life. I'd recently started a new job as a staff writer for a small business weekly. I tried to be happy about it, but accepting the offer felt wrong. Imposter syndrome initiated. My first assignment was a story about a new chef-to-table restaurant. It required back and forth with my editor on a draft, a long photo shoot in the busy restaurant, then going back to the restaurant for even more reporting. It should have been exciting to a young reporter like myself, but I cracked under the pressure. It's just too much, I sobbed on the phone to my boyfriend. You'll be fine, he said absentmindedly. My boyfriend was convinced I was just having new job jitters. At the new job, it was evident to me that I was the greenest reporter at the editorial table. I could write enterprising stories, but I needed a lot of help actually finding things to write about. More than once, I cried in my car during lunch breaks. I started to wake up each workday in full-blown anxiety mode. The morning terrors would subside and I could go to work eventually, but I started to feel worse as the special issue deadline loomed closer. For the special issue, we were putting together an in-depth look at, you guessed it, casinos. Ever since I had to be rescued from the side of the road, I'd developed a phobia of casinos and... Even worse, a phobia of driving out into the country. It didn't take Freud to figure out why. The trauma of the incident was pretty memorable. But it was embarrassing. I grew up doing lots of outdoor activities with my father. There wasn't a weekend where we weren't hiking, dirt biking, camping, or swimming. I used to love going out to remote areas. But now, 
The thought of being alone in the countryside was terrifying. It seemed ridiculous. Why was I scared of something that I knew so well? Why couldn't I just be normal? I pecked at my article, feeling the anxiety and shame slowly increase with each passing day. I was going to have to go out to a casino for the story. And just like the last time, I was going to have to drive out to the middle of nowhere to get there. I couldn't sleep the night before visiting the casino. I kept reliving the time where I had to be rescued from the side of the road. The next morning, I set off in my car towards my destination with a can of coke in hand to keep me awake. I got onto the freeway and prepared myself for the long haul. With each passing minute, I was driving further away from the city into a sparsely populated countryside. After 45 minutes, my GPS prompted me off the freeway onto a small road. It was barely wide enough for one car, and there was no one else around. Just wide open spaces, and me. It wasn't unlike the place where I had my terrifying moment while working for the radio station. I had tried to avoid places like this since then, but here I was, exactly where I didn't want to be. The soda never really woke me up. Instead, I started to feel dizzy. A million what-ifs started running through my head. What if this was like the last time, except I have no one to get me? What if I faint in front of these casino people? What if I get fired? Eventually, the gaudy skyline of the casino appeared. The sight of its overly done turquoise rooftops and gold accents made me sick. Why do casinos have to look this tacky? The familiar feeling of my arms turning to lead was getting too much to ignore. Although the casino was right there, I knew I couldn't make it without panicking. I pulled over and called the casino's PR person. I left a voicemail line about having to tend to a family emergency. Then I U-turned and drove straight to my mom's house. Hey, it's Willow. We'll hear what happened to Lara in a moment. But first, I wanted to share a couple of things with you. First of all, if you're experiencing anxiety like what Lara has been describing, you're not alone. 40 million adults in the U.S. suffer from it. In fact, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in this country. And mental illness can be overwhelming but you don't have to go through it alone. One of our sponsors for this episode is BetterHelp. They're an online counseling service, and they have thousands of licensed therapists all over the country. Wherever you are in the world, you can take advantage of their expertise. So one of the things that can be difficult when you're struggling is getting appointments quickly. I know I've run into that issue where I live, the good therapists often book up weeks in advance. But if you're hurting acutely, you want someone right away. One of the nice things about BetterHelp is that they'll get you in really fast, usually under 24 hours. 
you can get 10% off your first month with the discount code OUTTHERE. Just go to betterhelp.com slash OUTTHERE. They'll have you fill out a questionnaire so they can assess your needs, and then they'll match you up with a counselor. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash OUTTHERE. Most of us are familiar with the sound of crickets chirping. It's a sound that brings back fond childhood memories for me. Warm summer nights, running around barefoot in the yard, smell of freshly cut grass. But crickets have another use, too. Turns out, they are one of the most efficient sources of animal protein that exists. Most livestock animals are just not efficient at converting what they eat into protein. So if you think of a cow, a cow needs to eat about eight pounds of feed just to give you one pound of beef. That's Mohammed Ashur, the CEO of Exo Protein. Exo is our other sponsor for this episode. They are a snack company that makes nutrient-dense, eco-friendly foods using cricket protein. Mohammed says relying on traditional livestock for protein is really tough on the planet. Think about the amount of land, water, fertilizer, uh, logistics, shipping that has to happen to get eight pounds of feed in front of a cow. And then the cow only converts one of those pounds into protein and about seven pounds are essentially converted to waste and, and other byproducts that, you know, emit a lot of greenhouses into the atmosphere. In contrast, crickets are really efficient. And as for taste, Mohammed says the cricket powder they make is basically odorless and tasteless. So when you eat a power bar made with cricket protein, you're tasting the other ingredients, not the crickets themselves. For 15% off your order of Exo Protein snacks, go to exoprotein.com and enter the promo code out there at checkout. That's exoprotein.com, promo code out there. And now back to our story. The rest of the day and into the night, I was inconsolable. I couldn't sleep and I couldn't eat. My family was understandably worried. Like my previous anxiety attacks, my mom babied me. She encouraged me to quit my job so the pain would stop. I knew it wasn't about the job though. Whatever was going on with me was happening on a much deeper level. Other family members were less comforting. It seemed like everyone was judging me, asking why I couldn't handle my life. I wondered the same thing. What was wrong with me? Eventually, my sister called me. I think you know that the anxiety is going to be a problem for you because it has in the past, she told me as I wept into the phone receiver. You're probably going to need to treat it for the rest of your life. I knew I suffered from anxiety, but until now it had just seemed like a character flaw, like I was too sensitive to function in the real world. But now my sister was talking about the anxiety like it was an actual illness, a real medical condition, something that wasn't my fault. 
As I sat trembling on my mom's bed, I realized for the first time that this was something I didn't have control over. I needed help. The next morning, I called my editor and just plainly explained that I had a panic attack and was going to the doctor before returning to work. It felt weird telling him, an old boomer man I barely knew, one of my deepest, darkest secrets. I had tried to keep my anxiety under wraps, but I was finding out that as life got harder, it was getting harder to hide. The doctor prescribed Zoloft, which is used for treating depression and anxiety, as well as Xanax. The Xanax had immediate effects. It stopped the shallow breathing and the mind racing that came with panic attacks. But it made me too zonked out to drive or go to work. Zoloft, however, takes a while to set in. To make matters worse, no therapists were available immediately for an appointment. The soonest I could get in was several weeks away. Meanwhile, I couldn't bring myself to go to work. Every morning, I'd get up and have to vomit from anxiety. I lost weight, and I couldn't keep anything down. I tried working from home. I didn't want to be alone, so my friend Karen sat on the floor next to my desk as I worked on my articles. I began to feel like if I kept this up, the throwing up and not eating and week-long anxiety attacks, I was going to die. Instead of dying on a country road by myself en route to a stupid casino, I died literally starving myself because I was scared of going to work. I called the office and quit. The anxiety immediately subsided, but it was replaced by guilt and shame. Shortly after, I hunkered down in bed and I turned on an episode of Silicon Valley. Then I watched the next one. And the next one. I stayed like that for most of the week. I was depressed, but mostly ashamed for having a panic attack that ruined what I thought was the only chance I had to write professionally. It felt essential to hide in my apartment instead of going outside to talk to people. I felt like I didn't deserve to be out in the world because I couldn't get my shit together. My boyfriend came to visit me while I was holed up in my apartment. He told me I didn't need to doubt myself. This is what you went to school for and you've done before thousands of times, he said. This isn't something you can't do. He had told me this before, but this time, I heard him. This time, I believed what he said. I was capable. I was really smart. And I had been writing stories I was proud of. What prevented me from reaching my potential was the anxiety. A medical condition. Something doctors could fix. I started seeing a therapist regularly. I kept taking my meds. And eventually, some of the most intense feelings of shame wore off. I went back to the job I had prior to the Business Weekly. The banality of routine helped me start to feel like my old self. Weeks later, my sister and I prepared for a trip to Palm Springs. 
It was one that we had planned to do when I was still working for the weekly. Packing my bag for a trip I'd plan under different circumstances felt eerie. Before, I imagined myself jetting off to Palm Springs, a happy, successful writer with a full-time reporter job just having a girl's weekend. Instead, I was a mopey wannabe recovering from a psychological meltdown. Something else that was on my mind was the fact that I'd have to drive out to the desert where roads are smaller and more remote, much like the ones that led to the casinos and my mental breakdowns. What if the panic attacks came back? On my way to Palm Springs, I drove us all the way up 15 North, then 111 East, successfully avoiding what looked like smaller, more isolated roads on Google Maps. Driving back at the end of our Palm Springs getaway, my GPS guided us to roads I wasn't familiar with, but that promised a quicker return home. I don't want to go on these smaller, stupid-ass backcountry roads, I kept telling my sister. But staying on larger roads meant driving way out of our way. Figuring out an alternative route was getting annoying. Finally, I relented and just followed the GPS's directions through a mountain pass. If anything happened, at least my sister would be here to take over driving. I braced myself, waiting for the familiar feelings of anxiety to set in. But to my surprise, I was okay. There was no hyperventilating, barfing, or crying on my part. It was weird, but gratifying. Perhaps this meant that treatment was starting to stick. Maybe this anxiety thing could finally be under control, I thought. From that point on, things got better. Just like diabetics take insulin every day to manage their blood sugar, I maintain a strict regimen of drugs and therapy. And it worked. The drugs were like a wall that caged in my anxiety, preventing it from getting out of control. Therapy offered a place to work through problems. I was able to function again. And not just function, I felt content. Feeling content was something I'd never felt consistently in my life. I always felt like there was a cloud above me at all times, making me feel perpetually depressed and anxious about things normal people were able to deal with. Now that it was gone, it felt weird, but also great. Slowly, I started to feel less ashamed of my condition. Being a part of the millennial generation has made me aware that depression, anxiety, and panic attacks are common. And, at least in my case, they're treatable. I don't blame my parents for the way they responded to my anxiety when I was younger. They simply didn't know how to best help. They probably didn't know that anxiety was an actual disorder. Caring about mental health is, unfortunately, a relatively new priority for the mainstream. Time also gave me perspective to look back on my gigantic meltdown with a different lens. 
this is what happened when anxiety was untreated. My phobia of the outdoors wasn't actually a fear of nature. It was a symptom of my medical condition. Being in a remote natural area isn't scary to me anymore. Going hiking or driving out to the desert reminds me of my childhood rather than the time I thought I was going to die. I'm able to be out in the countryside again and actually enjoy it. Work got better too. I got my own column in the local alt-weekly, I got freelance gigs with the local newspaper, and I got a new job that paid twice as much as my old job, all things I never thought I'd have. I got my wish. I'm able to go through life like a normal person. That cloud of anxiety is just a distant smudge on the horizon. But I didn't get here by sucking it up. I got here by treating my condition with the care it deserved. That was Lara McCaffrey. She's a writer based in San Diego, California. Special thanks to Olivia Round, Mike Lutters, and Deb and Vince Garcia for their financial contributions to Out There. Listener support accounts for nearly half our budget. We couldn't make this show without you. If you'd like to start supporting Out There, or if you'd like to increase your pledge, just head over to our Patreon page. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform for creative endeavors. It lets you make monthly contributions to projects you care about, like this podcast. You can pledge any amount, whether it's a dollar a month or a hundred dollars a month. Just head to patreon.com slash outtherepodcast. You can get there through our website too, outtherepodcast.com. That's it for this episode. Our strategic advisor is Alex Eggerking. Our advertising manager is Jessica Taylor. Laura Johnston heads up our ambassador program. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. We'll see you in two weeks. And in the meantime, have a beautiful day. Be bold, go outside, and find your dreams. <laughs>